Well, so there's about a billion people that don't have access, but how good is that access? And so that's why we wrote this paper um, to say there are other considerations of access to electricity services other than the binary yes or no. Welcome to Energy 360, the podcast from the CSIS Energy Security and Climate Change Program. I'm your host, Lisa Highland. Today, we welcome Morgan Bazilian back to the show to talk about a recent paper on energy access. Morgan's an affiliate with the CSIS Energy Program, and he is director of the Payne Institute at the Colorado School of Mines. The paper that Morgan worked on with his colleagues at the Payne Institute and at the Energy for Growth Hub looked at how we assess energy access globally. They wanted to understand not just who has access to electricity, but also the quality and the reliability of that access. The authors estimate that approximately 3.5 billion people are without reliable access to electricity. I'll turn it over to Sarah and Morgan for this interesting conversation. Morgan, thanks again for joining us on Energy 360. Uh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Sarah. So you all are doing a lot of really interesting work at the Payne Institute, but we wanted to talk a little bit today about a paper that you've just put out called Measuring Reasonably Reliable Access to Electricity Services. And this is a paper that you put out with your colleagues, uh, John Ayaburi, uh, who's also with you at the Payne Institute, and then Jacob Kinser and Todd Moss for uh, at the Energy for Growth Hub uh, here in Washington, D.C. The basic premise of the paper is that we've been uh, mismeasuring this idea of access, if access is to be determined by access to reliable and sustainable and affordable energy supplies. Can you talk a little bit about why you wrote this paper and what some of the key findings were? Yeah, sure. My pleasure. So um, uh, just to reiterate what you said there, the, 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 the first author on the paper is uh, a young man named John Ayaburi. He's a, a Ghanaian and is a student at the Colorado School of Mines and just doing tremendous work uh, across the uh, energy space in, in developing countries. So it's, it's not so much that we thought the measurement of energy access was wrong. It's more that we wanted to expand the definition and the consideration of what energy access means so that um, policymakers and investors and decision makers have another data point uh, from which to make informed decisions. And I think we'll get to that later in the, in the podcast. But to, to start, um, as you well know, Sarah, and some of your audience, that the energy access uh, issue is, is tremendous. There, there, there are billions of people in the world that don't have access to uh, clean, reliable, affordable energy services. And that's both electricity as well as fuels for uh, heating, cooling, and cooking. Um, this paper focuses on the electricity side. In other words, there's more focus on the electricity side than there is on the heating, cooling, and cooking. Not for any um, good content reason, but rather that uh, in some ways it's more accessible and, and the, the data is a little bit easier to get at. And so um, several years ago, when the United Nations was forming the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals, this came after the Millennium Development Goals, energy was not part of the MDGs. So it was not part of the measuring of the United Nations as far as their key development uh, indicators. There weren't so many MDGs, um, less than 10. And now we have the SDGs, which 
um, are at 17. And one of them is energy. That's number seven. So that's sustainable development goal number seven. And I bring that up because it's sort of important to understand how energy became part of the UN development space. So before that, um, energy wasn't measured, energy access wasn't measured as part of those indicators, as I noted. It also wasn't so much on the radar of most uh, embassies or ambassadors in New York or their uh, aid programs. Uh, in other words, if you went 10 years ago, like I did to a lot of different uh, ambassadors or development organizations and said, why don't you work on energy? They would tell you, um, that's not our focus. Our focus is on core items like public health, education, uh, gender, etc. All of which, of course, are, are deeply important. Um, but energy was seen as a, I think, sort of as a technical aside. Mm. And at, in the run-up to the SDGs, my former boss, uh, Conde Youngkella, who's in Parliament in Sierra Leone now, made a concerted pitch over several years to discuss with the ambassadors in New York who represent their countries at the UN, at the General Assembly, to include energy as a core part of economic development and wealth creation. And so on an energy podcast, I don't have to make the case for why we think energy is important, but coming out of that process, the then Secretary General Ban Ki-moon called energy the golden thread of development. In other words, something that was important for all the other goals, from public health to poverty to uh, gender to um, children's health, etc. And that idea sort of stuck, and, and out of it came this sustainable development goal number seven, which has to do with energy access. And all of that said that that goal, like all the other goals, is now tracked. In other words, the data is, is uh, watched on a, a yearly basis and a report comes out uh, every year from the United Nations. And that report looks at the amount of people that have access to electricity services as one of its metrics. So that's just, do you or do you not have the ability to turn on a switch um, or something like a switch in your home if you can afford it to to get access to electricity to turn on a light or a television or whatever and the number of people without access to that electricity service was at 1.2 billion in 2010 it declined to 840 million in 2017 and further to 789 million in 2018. Mm -hmm. now just a side note on those numbers those are not terrific numbers and by that i mean they're not terribly rigorous in a scientific sense but they give you a, a decent sense of scale and they give you a sense of direction of travel that you know between 2010 and 2018 quite a few people got access to electricity um, because keeping in mind that um during that time of course there was population growth also so we're going from 1.2 billion in 2010 down to 780 9 million in 2018, according to the official statistics. Those are generally some kind of mishmash between the International Energy Agency numbers, uh, who's been collecting them for 20 years, and the World Bank, with some UN stats in there as well. So that's the headline number. And that number 
um, goes into the reporting of the United Nations and it therefore goes into the sustainable development goals and it therefore goes into the tracking that countries do on how they are progressing on their development. So this is done for developing and emerging economies. Um, so not for the OECD uh, per se, um, where the electrification rate, as they call it, um, would be at or, or, or near 100%. So that's the primary metric and it's a binary metric. So it says either you have this access or you don't have access. And it's a very important number and it's been a really useful figure for the diplomats and their embassies and their countries to have because it shows that you know, on the order of a billion people don't have access to simple levels of electricity. In other words, even low levels of electricity service, a billion people. That's, that's obviously significant. That's what roughly a seventh of the population of the world. And so is a tremendous uh, issue. So what we decided to say was, well, so there's about a billion people that don't have access, but how good is that access? And so that's why we wrote this paper um, to say, there are other considerations that you have to put into your consideration of access to electricity services other than the binary yes or no. And those have to do with the quality of the supply. So if we think of the number already there, it's a quantity. And then we wanna know about the quality. And I, here I'm not talking necessarily about the technical physics term of power quality, which has to do with wave shape and things like that, but a more generic thing of saying, well, does the power stay on? Uh, how long does it go off uh, a year or a month or a week? And for how long? So the, the duration of supply and you know, right now, of course, in Texas and Louisiana, we're seeing hundreds of thousands of customers with their power off because of a hurricane. Um, most of the power outages um, and reliability we see in the developing and emerging economies are not necessarily um, from severe weather, but just the, the infrastructure and operation of the system. So that's what we're, we're focused on there in these metrics. And so we decided to come up with a simple way. So this is, this is a first entry uh, into the space for us and just do a, a, a rather simple take on what something like reasonably reliable or decent electricity service could mean in order to inform these, the development community and the countries about the total number of, of people that don't have access to that decent or reasonably reliable electricity and therefore can make some decisions around it. So that's the long-winded way of answering your question. So Morgan, one of the things I wanted to do before we get into the methodology that you all came up with and some of the numbers that it produced is to talk about why quality didn't factor into the SDG in the first place or how we think about the quality measure for electricity access uh, normally, particularly within developing countries, but also developed countries, right? It's not like we don't measure these things. We do. Is there reason why reliability wasn't measured as a part of that basic access goal? Because reliability is in there in the SDG definition for goal seven. It says reliable and modern energy services. And I guess maybe in addition to that, 
the World Bank does have a way of thinking about quality of access through the multi-tiered framework. And you go through that a little bit in your paper. Can you talk about how useful or not useful it is as a measure of quality, since you guys have come up with a, a, a somewhat different measure? Yeah, sure. So um, as you well know, um, in most countries, the power system uh, has all kinds of different measurements for um, things like power quality from a technical perspective and reliability. That's a key performance metric for any uh, electricity or power sector utility or operations or market. And in OECD countries, th those are measured on a sub-second basis uh, and monitored constantly at operation centers that control frequency and then uh, at the macro scale and voltage at the distribution level. And so there's plenty of different metrics um, that go into that on an on a, on a instantaneous basis, those are measured. At the same time, in many countries, you have planning exercises that look at probabilistic models for quality. In other words, they do something called loss of load probability um, and things that are like that, that use various techniques from statistics to consider how much loss of load, in other words, how much power outage or uh, brownouts, et cetera, blackouts that, that might occur during the year. And then you build the system or invest in infrastructure accordingly. And so you saw some evidence of this in the California uh, energy uh, system over the last month where the uh, operator decided they had to use some uh, rolling brownouts. That's some of the load planned going out in order to avoid blackouts, which would, which are always disruptive, but during a pandemic are especially disruptive. And, and that's all part of the massive effort to maintain quality of service in OECD countries and many other countries. And that has to do with the importance of not just the internet connection like you and I have now, um, as we're speaking, but also, um, of course, at the uh, company and firm level where you need um, certain different levels of quality of supply, depending on what, say, you're manufacturing or um, providing uh, uh, services at office buildings, um, et cetera. So it, it's an extremely big, uh, important and costly part of the electricity system. But that tends to come... Um, after, um, or, or that focus on quality tends to come after you have the focus on quantity. So that is, even in the United States or the UK or China or any other country that has gotten their system up to close to 100% of access to electricity, um, which in all cases took decades, save for places, uh, Viet Vietnam, Thailand, and China, which did it rather more quickly, um, but it tends to be the case that quantity comes first and then quality. And so I think that's the reason, sorry, I do know why it happened in the UN, but I'm not gonna go through that whole uh, diplomatic process. But as you can imagine in formulating the SDGs and then under each of the SDGs, their metrics or the things that are tracked um, is uh, both a technical and a diplomatic negotiation. And so, in those kind of negotiations, certain things uh, come up and certain things don't. And at the same time, there's a push for simplicity to a certain degree. So keeping in mind that you now have these 
um, many SDGs coming from well, uh, five or seven MDGs. Um, and now you have multiple things to track under each one. It becomes more and more complicated. And it turns out that there was a database in place for tracking from the IEA mostly, and then to a certain degree, the World Bank tracking um, access to electricity. And that was the metric that was that had been used for a decade beforehand. And so it naturally made its way in there where the reliability number is, as you see from the paper, um, more difficult to come up with an objective measurement. And even we did not come up with a wholly objective measurement. It, it's to a certain extent a, a guess at what is reasonable. And so um, because in the time frame needed for the SDGs, no one had come up for that. That's why it's, it's not in there. Now, you asked about the World Bank's uh, MTF, the multi-tier framework, which is an exercise the World Bank did roughly during the time I was there. Um, and it was a nice way to consider um, how you would look at other parts of the electricity service sector besides the binary. Mm -hmm. And so while they did put in certain metrics for reliability, there was other really interesting things uh, that the multi-tier framework did, which we didn't include too much of because we focused on reliability, but they, they put in uh, some other issues that are really important to electricity service outside of quantity and quality. Mm -hmm. So issues of theft, issues of governance, um, and a couple other really interesting ones. So it, it's a very useful framework. The issue with it was that it was very difficult to get a global picture of. In other words, in order to fill out the multi-tier framework properly, they had to do surveys of specific areas in detail. And that is very time consuming and very costly. And in the end, it turned out to be too time consuming and costly to spread it out globally. So there are some reports where it was trialed in certain cities, um, from memory, there was one, a couple in Sub-Saharan Africa, cities that, that were used, et cetera. So um, it's a great framework, but it was not rolled out globally um, because of the issues of uh, transaction costs. And so that spurred us to come up with something much more simple. And mm -hmm. of course, as you abstract something, it becomes less robust. But at the same way, we thought we could come up with a generic high-level number that could be powerful enough to inform decision-making or to say, hey, look, in this country or in this region or in this city, we really need to go into the detail of the MTF based on this high-level reliability number. So those are my thoughts on, on the evolution and how it relates to other measures of reliability. So just to put a finer point too on uh, the the first part of your comments about the the process that takes place in thinking about how electric power systems develop. I mean, it, we have seen in the intervening period of time since the SDG seven was announced, India make a huge amount of progress on their access. And you know, no sooner had the applause uh, for for all of the progress that they made sort of died down very quickly followed by a conversation about what was the quality of that access, right? Even amongst the communities who had just received access, it was, well, but the quality of the access isn't that great. And so how do we improve that? So it is sort of a natural 
uh, evolution in the in the power system development in many different countries. Can you talk about how you decided to measure reliability and what you found? First, what is the definition for reasonably reliable? And then what did you find in terms of who has it? Yeah, sure. And just to go back to your point, which I think is a really important one, um, and I'll, I'll bring it up in, in my description of our methodology, but India is a sort of a special case in energy access and always has been um, because of the pure scale of it. Um, and so it always um, skews numbers in one way or the other, depending on how you think about um, your treatment of the country of India. So just to, just to say that, and that yes, while they made tremendous progress and they even were very transparent about it, it was all online. You could go online and see village by village being connected. Um, there were issues around the, the, the quality or reliability of that service once it got to the village gate, uh, as it were. That's not to take away from the amazing efforts of the Indian government in doing that because it really was an incredible push at very high speed. In other words, at a much higher pace than the United States did it uh, uh, back some decades ago. So it's worth mentioning both those things. So what we did, it's difficult to find reliability numbers on a utility by utility basis around the world. That's for two reasons. One, that sometimes the utilities don't want to share those numbers because they're tied to all sorts of different political with a small P issues, as well as a performance of management, et cetera. And second, because um, it's just too cumbersome to go to the world's I guess thousands of utilities and try to collect that data. So we, we, we moved away from that for the same reason we thought that we would move away from the, the, the multi-tier framework, in other words, towards simplicity a, a little bit. And so the two metrics that have global reach or put up uh, uh, data-wise, um, and we took these mostly from surveys from the World Bank, um, our system average interruption frequency index, that's SIFI, so that one you think of it in terms of frequency with the F, and SIDI, the system average interruption um, duration index, so that one's dur duration. So two things, the frequency, in other words, how often the power goes out, and the duration, in other words, how many uh, hours or, or minutes the power goes out. Keeping in mind that Often in the United States, um, utilities measure uh, CITE, the duration, in terms of minutes lost. And we're talking about hours or days in, in some other jurisdictions, just to keep that in mind. So we've, we've had some people come up, I don't know if it's snarky comments or, or real, um, saying, well, shouldn't the United States be on your list um, of reasonably reliable, and this is in relation to some of the power outages in California, or say what's happening in Texas or, or Louisiana now. And the answer is, is a resounding no. It, it, the, the United States has roughly superb uh, electricity reliability, and um, this is not uh, what we're measuring. We're measuring for, for uh, people and households and jurisdictions that have nothing like the power quality of the United States, both in terms of the technical pieces I talked about, say in frequency or shape, wave shape, um, or just in duration uh, or frequency. So just to get that out of the way. So we used CITI and SIFI, the duration and frequency uh, index, and we, we looked at a World Bank a data set for those. Now, 
we had to use a little bit of mishmash of data, which is typically how things go, because um, not every country uh, has it reported in the same year, et cetera, et cetera. So there, there are some some pieces of the data, but that that's to be considered typical in any statistical work. And what we did was we said, what what is reasonable? And so there's nothing terribly objective about the final metric we came up with. We just looked around the world at, at the 179 countries or whatever it was that we, we looked at and looked at averages or how many countries were below or above certain benchmarks on duration and frequency uh, of these 179 countries. And we come, we come up with uh, means and minimums and maximums, et cetera, and tried to get to a number that one could say, well, that's sort of middle of the road. That's middle of the road for a developing or emerging economy and a, a, a reasonable aspiration for, for this level of decent electricity. And, and so in doing that, we went through a couple different guesses about what that would mean and came up with what we hope is sort of an elegant solution. And that elegant solution means something that people can quote and understand. And that was uh, the frequency of outages would be if you're above 12 outages, you'd be on our list. And if the duration was more than 12 hours uh, a year, you'd be on our list. So that, that was the, the, the general index and threshold. It's, it's uh, for the readers who actually go to the journal article, which would be very few, it's in table two. And if we did it just by frequency, so those 12 outages, we'd have a total population without access to the reasonably reliable electricity services of on the order of 1.7 billion. And then if we include frequency, we're on the order of 3.5 billion. Okay, so the, the number roughly doubles. Now, keep in mind that the first number I gave you was uh, 789 million people that didn't have access to electricity services, period. Mm -hmm. So that was at 789, and now we've upped the number to either 1.7 or 3.5. That's the takeaway numbers. And so it's either a doubling or a tripling. It's more than that in the case of the big one. But it, the point is to say that Yes, the 780 billion is an important metric, but if you really look at the scale of the problem, it's more like up to half of the population of the world. So that, that's a much more significant uh, number. And essentially the difference between the 1.6 and the 3.5 is the country of India. So coming back to India, whether or not you include India for, in, a, in our earlier discussion or your question. So that's how we got there. What I've given you is not a terribly scientifically defensible methodology in some way, but rather a methodology that we think could be useful in, in, in diplomatic uh, circles and in decision making. In other words, we want to get a sense of scale, given that the original number 789 million is not terribly robust either, as I've said. The sense of scale there is what's important. So how big of an issue is this? And what we're saying is it's a huge issue and it's much bigger than what you had previously thought if you only look at it one way. So that, that, that's the entire raison d'etre and the results. Morgan, I wanted to dive into just a couple of things you said in a little more detail. The one is the comment you made about India, because, you know, when you look at the 
SDG access numbers alone, you know, the vast majority of the people that still lack access are in sub-Saharan Africa and Africa more broadly. And so it really sort of puts a very tight geographic focus on where that binary access issue still needs to get addressed. And what you said was, if I understood you correctly in the paper correctly, is that if you added your reli- reasonably reliable metric only for the um, the f- the frequency of outages, you're still pretty much geographically located in uh, in in that region. Uh, maybe I'm putting words in your mouth, but if you add the duration number, then you really do add a lot of people back in from India. In, into that overall total. Is that correct? Yeah, that, that's right, Sarah. And so that's also why and where we chose those numbers for the duration and frequency for our benchmark yeah. um, so that we could make it transparent and clear exactly what you just described. So Interesting. The, the other point is that not so much the big, beautiful number of the 3.5 billion versus the 1.6 billion, but, and, and so India become, plays a key role in that discussion but that even in Sub-Saharan Africa, where the world's attention is on as far as this electricity access number, we're still saying that that number is half of what it should be, because as it turns out, um, just having binary access is insufficient for wealth creation in a lot of cases. Mm -hmm. Not just wealth creation, but development more more broadly. And what we haven't gone into, and what I I think you were interested in, is how that relates to non-household electricity use. Mm-hmm. So as you know, um, Todd Moss, who's a co-author on this paper um, from the Energy for Growth Hub, and has been doing great work on, on the electricity access issue, and I've been working on this for a decade, is to say that the household electricity demand is not the only important metric and might not even be the important metric in, in, in looking at electricity services for society or for economies. Mm-hmm. Why we did not address that so explicitly in this paper was because we're trying to mirror and support the kind of metrics that could go into the SDGs. And if we go down to the firm level um, or the non-household level, um, it's a slightly different exercise and it's currently not measured at all under SDG 7. Um, it might be measured more under the industry SDG or, or manufacturing but it's a, it's a critical point and the, that's the reason it's not in there, but it does relate because um, while households need a certain level of reliability, um, businesses and firms even more so. And so by getting this vocabulary and some metric of reliability into the discussion, we thought we would help both areas. Can you talk about what you hope policymakers uh, or the development community will take from uh, from a study like this? Uh, do you, is there something you hope they do differently, or there should be some additional or different policy response as a result of these findings? Yeah, look, I mean, when when you when you when you write a paper in an academic journal. Um, if you're not aware that no one's going to read it, that you haven't been in the uh, <laughs> haven't been in the game for very long. Um, but that being said, um, we got a little coverage in Axios, and we had different kind of coverage um, through the network of the Energy for Growth Hub. And it's it's not a huge community of people that do this kind of work uh, in the UN and the bank and the IEA. So we all sort of know each other. I like to think that. 
if nothing else, it could help spur the conversations that happen around the SDG tracking report, uh, which is an annual report, as I've said, um, that goes to all the ambassadors and has done a process through the UN with help from the technical agencies. Um, and so in that small community, um, I'm hoping that uh, it, it has some resonance. And while that community is small, it's also the one who does most of the work in this area at the international level. And so if it could help at all with the decision making, say, in loans from the World Bank or the regional banks or the, the even at the uh, bilateral area from, from, say, USAID or KFW or the other international financial institutions, um, that would be something. You know, th this... Um, Putting out these beautiful numbers, and for your listeners, I'm, I'm putting air quotes around that, putting out these big numbers that are sort of beautiful and not terribly robust, turns out to be pretty important in international negotiations and diplomacy, because it helps negotiators and diplomats um, with a sense of scale and therefore a sense of importance. And so I, I, I hope it sort of permeates into those communities. And so the, the influence itself uh, might not be uh, terribly obvious to most people, um, but I'm hoping uh, it, it makes some difference on uh, a slight refinement or augmentation of, of, of approaches or investment, et cetera. Morgan, you've been extremely humble about your uh, air quotes, beautiful numbers uh, and the methodology, but I will say, you know, uh, also having worked in this uh, small community of folks for a while, it's very difficult to talk about something for which you don't have numbers. And it's very difficult to talk about it over a sustained basis if it's not being measured in a way that people at least find useful uh, over a, a time period. And so I think in that way, it's a, it is a good contribution. And it certainly gets to an issue that's come up a number of times, in, including when uh, your co-author Todd Moss has been on Energy 360 and we've talked about some of these issues. It's really hard to communicate about the the idea that the international community does care about the quality of access uh, when it's not being measured uh, as and, and the frontline numbers are never about it. And so therefore, I think it is a, a tremendous contribution in that sense. And it certainly opens up a conversation for talking about what is reasonably reliable, and hopefully you've started a helpful uh, debate for that community. Yeah, I appreciate it, Sarah. And, and, you know, things like getting on your Energy 360 podcast make a difference for, for how it's heard to get it out to, to different communities. And I think, look, you know, the, the aspiration is not to uh, 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 make a radical change in the world. I'm, I'm uh, uh, too cynical for that. But <laughs> Hopefully it adds to the conversation. It's not like the, the community who looks at these issues is not aware of the issue of quality as well as quantity. Right. It's just that so far, you know, there's been this difficulty to balance something rigorous with something useful. So that, that's, the, that's the hope. That's excellent. Well, Morgan, I just want to say thank you for taking the time to uh, come on Energy 360 and explain the paper to us. We definitely recommend it to folks and... Uh, it's it's interesting to to sort of parse through how you all have come up with your methodology and hopefully this will be kind of the first of a number of times that you'll be able to carry out this work. Yeah, thanks, Sarah. Thanks, Lisa. I appreciate it. And thanks for having me on. Thanks to Morgan and his colleagues for working and writing on this important issue. 
There's a link on our website to the report, and we encourage you to read it and to check out other great work from Morgan and the Payne Institute. As always, thanks for listening. Find more episodes of Energy 360 wherever you listen to podcasts, find us online at CSIS.org, and follow us on Twitter at CSIS Energy.